Matthew 19, Jesus now has taken his journey towards Jerusalem and once again ministers to the multitudes. He is walking under the shadow of the cross, um, knowing all that is going to happen to him, yet declaring some of the most important teachings to the believer as he's headed towards Jerusalem. Chapter 19, 1 through 12, we have the teaching of Jesus on divorce and remarriage. This morning we did an in-depth study on it. We will touch on it in general commentary, but if you weren't here, I would encourage you to get that. It is skirted. It is not touched on by pastors. It is watered down. It is compromised. And that's one of the main reasons why we have so many things going on in the church. It's hard to tell people from the church from the world in our day, and it should not be. And so here in um, verse 1 through 12, the parallel passage is in Mark chapter 10, verse 1 through 12. And the ongoing journey of Jesus towards Jerusalem, his departure from Galilee, the transitional phrase here, now it came to pass Jesus had finished these sayings, and this phrase appears five times, we've noted it before, um, 7, 28, 11, 1, 13, 53, and here in verse 1 and 26, 1, the five um, major discourses, and they're um, taken as natural divisions by some for the Matthew um, uh, gospel. Now, the things that Jesus had just finished is talking about the teaching of the, of the wicked servant who would not give forgiveness as he had received forgiveness. This is the backdrop of it, okay, very important. The route Jesus now is taking towards Jerusalem is that he departed from Galilee, and he came to the regions of Judea, Beyond the Jordan. Now, some of you will be with us next month there in Israel, and we will um, be able to point that out as we go down to the Dead Sea and down towards Elad, and we'll, you'll see the uh, uh, Jordanian mountains and um, the, uh, the Sea of, uh, of uh, the Dead Seas there. And in the evening, it looks red because of the red mountains of uh, um, Jordan there. And uh, Jesus and his disciples had come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, remember, of Galilee. And they had gone to the city of Capernaum back in chapter 17, verse 24. Jesus now goes to the east side of the Jordan River, the other side, the region of Judea beyond the Jordans. Uh, this area was known as Perea. And uh, today it's modern-day Jordan. And Jesus um, chose to travel down that way, down the King's Highway to Jerusalem, it's still used today. It's an ancient road. And then the only other way you can go without going through Samaria is the Via Maris down the Mediterranean Sea all the way up. And the Jews would take both sides of it. And this way they wouldn't have to go through Samaria and shake off the dirty dust from the Gentiles and all that. And, uh, and so they would do that. Uh, Jesus has gone through Samaria. In John 4, it tells us he talked to the woman of Samaria. This time he chose to go to Perea, working his way down. And... Um, he set his face steadfast, Luke 9.51 tells us, towards Jerusalem. There is no turning back. He is totally committed. And the compassion of Jesus here was not diminished, though he was headed to the cross. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Verse 2 there. Jesus continues to heal all who come to him, regardless of the infirmity. Luke tells us that Jesus was teaching them also, Mark uh, 10.1. Um, teaching is important because of the spiritual benefit that it brings to the believer. 
sometimes people get caught up simply in the um, uh, miraculous gifts of the Spirit, those that are more visible, uh, speaking in tongues and miracles and prophecy and this and that. And yet they don't have a hunger for the Word of God, and so they're always running around for the new experience through the newest movement. And because they're not grounded, they can't judge that much of the time it's false doctrine that's led by people who are charlatans. And so they get deceived. They get merchandised. And the balance is always with teaching, ladies and gentlemen. Now, verse 3, the question on divorce by the Pharisees is presented. The Pharisees were the, uh, in the midst of the crowds also. They also came to him testing him. Uh, religious hypocrites, ritualists, as we saw before. They came to Jesus to test him, meaning to, uh, uh, in a malicious way, to try to trap him so they could accuse him regarding the Mosaic Law. And the question was one of great controversy. Um, and they say, said to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason so or any cause, depending on the translation? That's the focus and the specific thing about divorce here. Um, the specific was the legality uh, in the law for a Jewish man to divorce his wife for any reason at all. Um, again, Matthew is dealing with the Jews, so he only deals with the man's right to divorce because a woman can never divorce a man um, unless he was um, uh, a leper, uh, unable to consummate the marriage, maybe impotent, or um, he was crazy or had leprosy. Outside of that, a woman would not be able to do that. Uh, and yet, the Jews had the highest ideal for the woman at this time, and yet it is very low. Uh, she was the possession of her father. She was to bear children, take care of the home, and the Word of God was never, the law was never to be taught to a woman, ever. And yet that was high compared to the rest of the, the world. Everywhere the gospel has gone, as I said this morning, has elevated women. All these um, whacked-out liberals, Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood, your professors in your universities that attack the Bible have no idea, no clue of the freedom that God has brought to civilizations and countries and nations throughout history as the gospel has reached them. Amazing. They speak out of a poison well, a corrupt mind, a wicked heart. God help them. There was two schools of thought, as we said this morning. You had uh, Shemaiah, who was conservative. He said that only adultery was the basis for divorce. You had Halel, remember him with the owl liberal. And he said it was for any reason. If she burned your bagels, if she saw or talked to a man on the street, um, if, um, if, if uh, to an extreme that when one rabbi, Akiba, said if, if he saw a woman more beautiful than his wife in the street or anywhere, that would make her, his wife, unclean in his eyes and he could divorce her. She didn't have to be warned, just two witnesses, writing a divorce, handed it to her, and she was out. That was the highest view of women. Wow. Divorce was fairly easy in the days of Jesus, as you see. It's no different than ours. Adultery, a judge, a lawyer will laugh at you. Those aren't, who cares? 
no-fault divorce through the 70s, right? Now, verse 4 through 6, you have the response of Jesus on divorcing one's wife for any reason. Jesus points out God's original creation. He answered and he said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? So God created two sexes, male and female, for them to procreate, maintain the human race. Genesis 1.27 and 5.2. Men and female only. Two identifications that are legitimate for your person. Your race doesn't matter. Your color doesn't matter. Your religion doesn't matter. You are male or female. And if you go home, what you are should match the equipment you have. Okay? God doesn't make mistakes. It's real simple. All right? Uh, you never confuse a male jack for a female jack, do you? All right. Enough said. It's real, real simple. Only in the corrupt heart of man, the twisted minds of men, do they try to justify and to twist what is right and righteous and natural to that which is unrighteous and unnatural. Jesus pointed out God's original design was for the institution and nature of marriage here. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 5, leave to depart, to sever that parental authority, because no longer are you a little boy. You're not underage. You are old enough to take a wife to yourself. So now you depart from your father, your mother's home, to establish your own home. You do not call your dad and see if you can stay out past midnight. Um, you don't have to do that. Um, simple, okay? It doesn't mean you abandon your parents. You don't, but there's a new home. And just a side note, your parents have nothing to say about your marriage once you're married, okay? Concentric circle, the bullseye, you, your wife, your children, outer concentric circle, in-laws, in-laws, outlaws, okay? And then friends on the outer circle. All those come in only by permission. They don't cross over. They're concentric, Okay? Men, you are the heads of your home. You're responsible for your wife, for your children. You take your directions, your guidance from God and the scriptures, not from men. Very important. And you oversee your home properly because God will hold you responsible for that. Um, to be joined, he says, that means to glue. Okay, and whatever you glue together to two pieces of two by four, if you separate them, there's going to be splintered. That's what divorce does. That's the breakup of the home does, okay? As I said this morning, people say, oh, we're the best of friends now. We, we get along better than we did before. You're lying. Or you're really unnatural. Which one is it? Okay? And we buy all these lies today. And we repeat them like, you know, the way you teach your parents to, to, in Mexico when I was growing up, to teach them how to cuss is you just drape them, get them drunk, and you keep repeating these things next, next morning, two days. Man, that boy is just a sailor. And people just drink too much Kool-Aid today. They don't examine anything. Examine it to the Word of God. Now, Jesus declared the permanency of binding result of marriage. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. One flesh, sexual union, and by the way, it's a covenant of blood. If both you are obedient to God and you get married, you go to your honeymoon bed, then your wife will produce the evidence of her virginity. And it's a covenant of blood that binds you together. 
Okay? Your redemption is the covenant of blood. Ladies, you are a walking altar. Every time that you're a single young lady and you ovulate once a month, if it is not fertilized, that egg is atoned by blood. And then when you come to age where you come to menopause, there's no more blood because you cannot produce children and none are being actually passed from what's potential life to no life. Therefore, there's no need of atonement any longer. You ever think about that? It's an amazing thing. God's an incredible creator. Incredible. Gentlemen, your health is the head of your home. Ephesians uh, 2, 5, 22 to 23. Your wife is your complement. Genesis 2, 18. It's not good the man should be alone. I will make a help me comparable to him, completing you. And you care for your wife. You protect your wife. You provide for your wife. You stand between her and anybody else. You are the head. She is to be protected by you and taken care of. She is the weaker vessel. You are the weak vessel. See, right away we think weaker, stronger. No, 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 no. Weaker, weak. And both of you together will be strong in the Lord. Very important. So the man was not created for the... The woman, but the woman for the man, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 8 through 12. Not for a sex toy, not for a sex slave, not to be a maid, not to be oppressed, not to be ruled, but to be taken care of as Christ cares for the church, gentlemen. That's only possible if you're born again, if you walk in the Spirit, if you're grounded, if you're growing if you're obeying the Lord and vice versa. They are joined for life till death. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. The closest, most intimate relationship on earth, the word separate is to divide. It's used for divorce by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, 11, and 15. When you come to verse 7, the question of Moses to allow divorce uh, for some reason is brought before Jesus. They're trying to test him. They're trying to find some fault here. The Pharisees thought they were going to trap him and able to accuse him. And they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? The reference is to the law in question here in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 through 4. Uh, some teach right there, it says, if a man finds some uncleanness as his wife, then he's able to give her a divorce with two witnesses and she's gone. But the passage warns the man. The word uncleanness there, sometimes people try to teach that it's adultery or that the woman was not a virgin. And there's some very godly men who teach this. I disagree with them. Because if a woman committed adultery, whether it was through the one-year espousal or after marriage, there would be no divorce. They would stone her to death. And if she deceived her husband and she couldn't produce her nuptials, her parents and that before the elders, she would be stoned also. So it cannot be talking about adultery in that text or that you are a non-virgin. Leviticus 20 verse 10 and Deuteronomy 22, 13 to 21. 
The concession was for protection of the woman, if you read it carefully, to not live in an abusive home and be called an adulteress if she just left without a certificate. The text is warning the husband, think twice before you let her go because you're not going to get her back. And it says there in the text that she goes out after you give her the divorce with two witnesses, then she are setting her free, and when she marries another man, if he dies, <clears throat> you cannot take her back. Implication being that she was not guilty of any sexual impurity, for if she was, they would have stoned her. But the man giving her this right in the divorce and her marrying somebody else, it was the man who accused her falsely and cantankerously really caused the defilement of that woman by her union with that man. And he says, you don't get to take her back. Wow. It's got just or what? Pretty heavy. This reveals he was responsible for her sexual defilement. The concession was given to control order of society in the theocratic community of Israel to discourage divorce, not to encourage it. Anything that that goes bad our way, it should be made very difficult for us to get our way so that every step we are thinking twice before we really make that last step. Because in some situations, once you take that last step, it is done. You cannot undo it. You cannot redo it. You have just bought that sucker. It's all yours. Verse 8, the answer for Moses allowing divorce is given. The people of God refuse to be like their God. Listen, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts... The reason, hardness of heart. Matthew 15, 18 through 19. Malachi 2, 13 through 17. He rebukes the people for crying at the altar while they're divorcing their wives and trading them in on the new models with the young babes in the, in the, in the, in the land. Wow. Hypocritical. God says, I hate divorce. and I'm going to hold you responsible. This was a concession to protect the woman and have an orderly manner due to the hardness of their heart, permitted because of the hardness of their heart. What parable is connected with this? The one that preceded at the end of chapter 18. That wicked servant that was forgiven billions and refused to forgive dollars and cents. Wow. That's not there for you to criticize or myself. That's there. It's a mirror. That's me. That's you. Very important. Very important. Look at verse 9. The only reason for divorce is given. This is the highest authority. Listen carefully. And I say to you, this is Jesus speaking. He quotes nobody. Never did, never will. The guilty party, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Sexual immorality, porneia. It indicates and identifies all manner and method of sexual activity, including fornication prior to marriage. 
but it's also used in the context here of marriage. So therefore, it's talking about adultery, not sex before marriage. Clear? All right? Because people, again, try to pull it here. Um, if it was sex before marriage, then uh, the greater portion of the Gentile world would have been adulterers when the church came in. Or today. It would also mean that sex constitutes marriage rather than the institution before God. The benefit of marriage. Because you have sex with someone doesn't mean that you're married to them. It doesn't mean that you have to be committed to them. It means that you should recognize the evil of it, repent from it, and ask God to forgive you. And then when God brings you to someone, be honest, be open. And if God has brought them to you, they're going to love you as Christ. Things are taken care of. Okay? But you're upright. You're honest. You don't undermine your marriage. To declare something before you get married is wisdom. To declare it afterwards is plain stupidity. It just undermines the trust of you and your husband. And it's Satan's devices. It's better to find out the person wants you for who you are before you say I do than afterwards. Always. Okay? If he doesn't want you, you're better off. If she doesn't want you, you're better off. Absolutely. So, little advice for you young people, okay? That are single. Now, it would also mean that Jesus didn't answer their question if it means fornication. Sex being single. They're asking specifically about marriage. That's why this word refers to marriage. The context dictates how it's interpreted. The compounding of one sin is, is me measured here. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So if the wife is innocent, then the one that she marries defiles her being still married to her husband. If a man or a woman divorces their husband or wife, there being no adultery, then they're really exposing them to being tempted to remarry again and have them be defiled by the first act of sex with the next person because they're still married to you. Because the only thing that breaks marriage is adultery. Not a piece of paper. Are we clear on this? All right? What a shocker. Why don't pastors teach this? Man. The guilty party committing adultery cannot remarry except for their repentance. Very important. Now, it's very touchy. Jesus already mentioned in chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Same thing, except for pornea. All right? Now, and this is where only God knows the heart. Let's just say you, um, you say, you know, I, I, I don't really care. I'm going to just, I'm going to leave my wife, my husband. And, and we've, we've had situations like that. And they divorce them and they go out and they get married. And then they, um, um, they seemingly repent and, you know, they say they're okay. Well, I don't know the heart. If they're truly repentant, then it's going to be evident because they're going to, first of all, apologize and make amends with the prior mate. That doesn't mean they divorce a second person. They have to stay there. 
Okay, any, any pastor who tells you, okay, if you, there was no adultery and you get remarried and you really repent and you should leave that second marriage and go back to the first one, they're smoking crack. Now you've messed up too. No, you stay in that marriage, you ask forgiveness from the prior marriage, and you own it up honorably. You were the one that messed up. Not God, not the innocent party, you. Okay? And all of that deals also with your ability to serve in the church. If you've had a hundred marriages before Christ, they're all gone. After Christ, are they biblical or not? I mean, would you like me to be your pastor who had been married three, four times in the Lord? Would you come and sit here and hear me? Then I require the same for you. No different. Very important. Now, the response of the disciples to the teaching of Jesus on divorce and remarriage is interesting. The disciples were shocked at the Lord's narrowness. Christians react the same way when they hear me. <laughs> pastors. I heard that some pastors just listen in to see what crazy next thing I'm going to say. Amazing. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Good conclusion. The obvious implication is that they sided with Hillel, the liberal theologian. They felt that you could divorce for every cost. <laughs> they were liberals. The dirty dozen. Mark says they asked Jesus... Again, in the house in John 10, 10. He, he, he taught them outside and then they went in the house. He said, now let me get that again. Give it to us again. Hit me again. Wow. The 12 concluded that if adultery is the only reason for divorce, then maybe it's best not to marry. That's right. You will devastate a person for life. If you play games in marriage, it's not having a girlfriend, it's not having a boyfriend, it's not all about you, it's all about God and the other person. You're to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Very, very important. This is the point. Consider well who you will marry because it will bind you for life. And I don't, I shouldn't have to say it, but I'm going to say it. Do not be unequally yoked. If you're single, do not date non-believers. When you go out with a non-believer young lady, he's not going to want to read John. He's going to want to read your body by Braille. Okay? That's just the way it is. That's the flesh. So when it happens, don't cry wolf. You've been around, and if you haven't, don't go around. It's just that simple, okay? Because you will sow and you will reap. Trust me. What to God I would have got saved when I was 9, 10 years old. I was 23. Little too late. Now, the 12 concluded that this is a hard thing. But that's 
what you have to make a decision on every person. Verse 11 through 12, the response of Jesus' disciples' response is um, to remain single if you're able. Jesus points out that not all can handle the life without sexual satisfaction. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying. Jesus said those God gives the gift of celibacy are the exception, but only those who, to whom it has been given. Paul points this out also in 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 40. So if God gives you the gift of not be, having to be married, it's because you, you can be around if you're a young lady, you're around men, and it doesn't really, you don't have no real desire to be with a man or to have a boyfriend or, and I'm not talking about being lesbian or anything else. I'm talking just the normal, you know, male or female. And most likely God has given you that gift or a man. But it is the exception. It is not the rule, okay? Uh, otherwise, God wouldn't have said, multiply and replenish the earth, okay? Simple. Now, the ver there's various types of individuals that have no need to marry for sexual contentment. And Jesus puts this in verse 12. He says, those born with some physical impairment to engage in sexual intercourse as those eunuchs who have been born thus from their mother's womb. Uh, so some deformity, some abnormality, some accident, whatever it may be, um, that's one type of eunuch, okay? Um, then those incapable of sexual oneness because of being castrated to protect the king's harems. This was a practice of those days, Okay? And that's what he's talking about, the second class there, because, of course, the kings want you to protect the harem, not to taste the harem. And so um, they take care of you. And as I said this morning, Daniel was probably a eunuch. It was a head eunuch that was, had custody over Daniel and his friends. Okay? And we follow Daniel till he's 90-some years old, and we don't read anything about a wife or anything else. Like we see Joseph that was taking a wife and everything. So very possibly, he was a eunuch. The last one is those <clears throat> gifted to be capable by God for his kingdom. And these are the eunuchs made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now, the church father Origen misunderstood this and misinterpreted it, and he castrated himself and later said, oops, um, you want to make sure you get the right interpretation of this verse, okay? He's talking um, in figurative ways here, symbolic, and yet declaring a literal, a literal practice of those days for the harems, okay? So you need to understand it. Now, each person must decide. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So you're the only one that can determine, do I have the gift of being single without burning in my lust or stumbling or sinning, or do I not? You're the only one that can decide that as you walk with God. Verse 13 through 15, the welcoming of the children by Jesus, the parallel passages is Mark 10, 13 through 16, uh, chapter, uh, verse 23 to 31 also, and then Luke 18, 
15 through 17. In verse 13, the children were brought to Jesus. Those who were brought, who brought them is not stated, but most likely is their mothers or maybe parents together. Then little children were brought to him. The practice was common to bring children to the rabbis, you know, that they prayed for them, that they blessed them. Um, the purpose is stated that uh, he might put his hands on them and pray. Um, the adults were very aware of the ministry and the power of Jesus that they heard and they saw him as Messiah. The, the most needed thing uh, for children is spiritual prayer and guidance by the parents. When you, when I see you come in with your children, when I see on Sunday morning and the midweek or Sunday night, and I see you walk in the church in with your children, and I see your children just excited going down the hall, and they're just being taught, I know the Word of God, they're not being babysat. What an incredible wealth that is. Would to God that I would have had that when I was younger. It's such a protection. It's the only thing that's going to keep them. If they walk with God. Um, the laying on of hands is symbolic of blessing. Um, goes back to Genesis 48, 14, Acts 6, 6. Laying on of hands to heal, to anoint, to transfer a, a call or something. Uh, Luke says they were infants in Luke eighteen fifteen. The objection, notice, was unhesitating. But the disciples rebuked them the disciples rebuked the people not the children luke 18:15 perhaps the disciples tried to protect jesus from the crowds or maybe they thought he was too busy i don't know we're not told jesus used the child as you know as the object lesson to illustrate greatness in the kingdom of God and humility and apply that to the believers in chapter 18, verse 1 through 14. Though he used a literal child, he made the illustration of that child for the disciple, for the principles of discipleship, humility and loving and serving and forgiveness. Verse 14 and 15, we have the rebuke of Jesus now. To the disciples, Jesus equally did not hesitate to respond. But Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. These children, the word there means young boys and girls. Let them come to me. Again, Matthew 18, 2 through 5 and 10. Uh, these are literal children that are not to be obstructed from coming to Jesus. And I think of the schools and teachers and curriculum of our public school education that just frowns, mocks, discourages, and prohibits prayer in school, talking about Jesus, carrying a Bible. If they would have told me that when I was going to school in the 60s, I would have called you a commie. I would have never believed it. Not in my wildest dreams. And yet here we are. And it's been around for a good 20 years. Now, the universities, the professors, God helped them. God has a special place for them in the lake of fire. 
as they destroy young people's faith. They target them. Some of them pay a great price. They flunk classes because they speak up. One young lady was in class and the professor, she thought that she was just, you know, because you know, professors, I've been there. I've been through uh, secular universities and also Christian university. And they're like little gods. And she pulls out this skeleton in the biology class. She says, now as you notice, this skeleton has not a rib missing. Up went the hand from this Christian young lady. She said, yeah, but that's not Adam's skeleton. Ooh. She flunked the class. Amazing what great reward that young girl had from God. Absolutely. If they want to fight, don't disappoint them. I don't want to fight, but if you want to fight, let's do it. Jesus went to the cross and died for me. The least I can do is stand up and defend him. Now, Jesus again makes the illustration of those in the kingdom, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. We know that children are little rotten sinners because they're our children. But there is an innocence, there is a tenderness, there is a trustworthiness in small children. Okay? And that's what he's pointing out. And he used that for the greatness in the kingdom in chapter 18. And um, Jesus blessed the children and he laid hands on them and departed from there. Um, Can you imagine being one of these kids and the Messiah Jesus, God laid his hands on you and prayed over you? Amazing. Verse 16 to 30, you have the rich man, the rich young man that comes to Jesus. The parallel passage in Mark 10, 17 through 31 and Luke 18, 18 through 30. In verse 16, the words of the rich man are given to us. He came seeking Jesus out. Now, behold, one came and said to him, good teacher. Mark 10.7 says he came running. Luke 18.18 18 says he was a ruler. Mark 10.17 says he knelt in reverence. Wow. Pretty impressive. He came seeking salvation. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? The phrase eternal life, aeonios, means age-abiding life. It focuses on Quality, not quantity. Every time the Bible speaks of eternal life, it speaks about quality of life. God-like life. Secondly, life that will never end. But it's experienced here in a godly manner. He thought eternal life had to do with doing Instead of believing and receiving. A lot of people like that. If you come out of the Catholic Church, there is a real tendency for you to live like that. Even once you accept Christ. If you're not growing in Christ. 
because you're so bound. I was raised a Catholic. I was born in Mexico City. I've seen Catholicism to the max, to the bone in Mexico City and South America, Central America, the Philippines. And you're always trying to do penance, trying to do this, trying to appear good and all that. Those are all religious actions that mean absolutely zippo. They mean nothing. The response of Jesus at 17 answers his question with a question. Brilliant. So he said to him, why do you call me good? Wow. Jesus told him there was only one good, God. No one is good but one. That is God. Now, either Jesus is saying I'm no good or I'm God. Which one do you think he's saying? <laughs> All right? He's God. Jesus put his finger on the desires of the rich man. Listen, but if you want to enter into life, Keep the commandments. The young rich man first said, What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Jesus tells him he must be born again first. Listen to the words. If he wanted to enter into life eternal, age abiding life. You don't work for it. You don't do nothing. You enter in by faith. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Then he would be able to obey the commandments from the heart, not just outwardly, like Jesus pointed out on the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7, exposing the Pharisees and the scribes, right? Religious people. Be attitudes, not do attitudes. 18 and 19, the response of Jesus to the rich man is given to us. There is no indication of him being sarcastic or ironic or disrespectful, but quite sincere. He said to him, which ones? Now, usually we smart Alex, you know, which one? But everything in the text indicates the man was sincere. He was sincerely seeking. A lot of people sincerely seek. But as they hear, they start evaluating what it's going to cost them. Hmm. A clear indication that he was religious, giving greater value over to other things besides the real important things giving greater value to one set of the commandments and maybe not all of them. Maybe he didn't see them all on equal value, equal plane, necessary to keep. Which ones? Because when you're religious, you know, you have little white lies, black lies, venial sin, mortal sin, right? We classify them, right? No. One sin. Being born into this world damns you to hell. God will take care of the children until the age of accountability. But once you're past the age of accountability, if you don't repent, you'll end up in hell because you were born a sinner. 
and being born a sinner, you will practice sin all your life. You will become a slave to sin unless God intervenes in your life and mine. Jesus gave him the second table of the Ten Commandments of the law. Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Now notice Jesus didn't give the second table in the proper order that it's written. But simply that it's man's relationship to man. Second table. The first one is the vertical, my relationship to God. The second one is the horizontal, man's relationship to man. So he doesn't give them in their chronological order. The other two gospels, synoptics, also, they have some similarities, but they change in order and they also change the specifics. Mark 10, 19 and Luke 18, 20. Now, notice Jesus summarizes the second table of the law by the statement, and you shall love your neighbors yourself, Leviticus 19. And these two lie all the, all the prophets, the law and the prophets. Love God with all your mind, heart and soul and love your neighbors yourself. They ask Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? Those two. That's it. In 20 and 22, the response of the rich man is given to us. His response was with confidence. Listen to him. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? He's got this void. Romans 8 tells us that God has created us with a void that can only be filled by God. You can try to fill it with sex, with drugs, with alcohol, with academic success, with whatever, fame. Listen, you're always going to come up empty. Always. Because God has created you for Him. And once you have Him, you're satisfied. Everything else will hold its proper place and value then. Very, very important. You live for Him and you thank Him for things. Now you don't live for things and just use Him. <laughs> Everything changes. He said He had kept them all from His youth. Wow. Now Jesus did not call Him a liar. But this doesn't mean that it was true. Jesus knew it was only outward if it was true because he couldn't keep that inwardly. Paul says, I had not known that coveting was sin except the laws that I shall not covet. That which was good to me, now it slew me. All of a sudden, the law killed me because God is... The law Jesus spoke about is not outwardly, it's inwardly. God looks at that. Sometimes people take arguments like this as well. If Jesus didn't call him a liar, it must be true. Well, you know, Jesus said to Satan too. You know, Satan says, uh, um, all authority has been given to me and I can give these empires whoever I will. So people say, well, that's a true thing. Really? Satan's a liar. He's never said the truth. Because Jesus didn't rebuke him or correct him. That doesn't make it true. If you're a parent, you know your child's trying to pull your leg, try to lie to you. 
And you look at them and you don't even talk, you don't even answer, you just go like this. And that's enough where you look at them and they, they know that you know, all right? Which is a stronger rebuke than words. It's real simple. He's, his religious life is very evident. Then he asks, what do I still lack? The response of Jesus to the rich man put his finger where the young man's heart was, his God. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven and come and follow me. Wow. Perfect. Mature. Without lack. That's what it means. Jesus called them to sell all that he had and part to the poor, and he promised them treasures in heaven. Remember Matthew 6.21? For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. He doesn't say where your heart is. Then where your treasure is, your heart will be there. Jesus did not reject him, but called him to be his disciples. Come and follow me. Mark tells us that Jesus loved him and then told him to go sell all that he had. Mark 10, 21. He loved him. Didn't mock him. Didn't try to discourage him. He loved him. The rich man rejected the offer of Jesus, but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The rich man did not rejoice for the invitation. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful. Grieved is the word. Matthew six nineteen and 20, 13, 22, 1 Timothy 6, 20, James 5, 1 through 5, Revelation 3, 17. The love of money. Root of all evil. Not money, the love. The reason is made clear, for he had great possessions. There's no question on why he rejected Jesus. Notice the teaching for the disciples now is applied to salvation and wealth. Verse 23 to 26, Jesus declared the difficulty of rich men to love and trust God more than their um, riches, their money. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Surely I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus illustrates the impossibility of a rich man to enter heaven because of their Riches. Not that he can't save them, but they trust their riches. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He illustrates this through this illustration about the difficulty. It is a literal camel through a surgical needle. Not what you read in commentators, that this was a small gate in Jerusalem and when they came after sundown, they would make the camel kneel down and they would push it through a small gate and if he can make it through it... No, no, no. Luke says it's a surgical needle. Luke was a physician. All right? If a person doesn't live for their money, they will trust God that can be saved. But few rich men do trust God more than their money. It's hard. 
It grabs us. Verse 25, the disciples again are shocked at Jesus when his disciples heard it. They were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? The word astonished means amazed, throwing you off kilter, dumbfounded, stupefied. Jesus reminds the disciples God is able to to save rich people, though It will be few that will come. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Zacchaeus, Nicodemus. We have plenty of examples in Scripture. But they're few. 17 through 30, the reflection on these words of Jesus are given to us. The usual one um, that takes the lead, Peter, hoof and mouth disease. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Perhaps considering the fishing business that they had forsaken, it was pretty lucrative. They had boats. They had servants. They weren't poor. Now, they weren't wealthy, as uh, Channel 40 says, but, you know. The believer will be rewarded at the Bema Seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, the motive of the heart. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. And I believe Romans 14, 10 or so. Bema Seat of Christ. The judgment will be the motive. Why I did it and how I did it. Not how much I did. God is not impressed with how much I do or what I do. He's impressed. Do I do it because I love God and I love you? Or do it because I want to be seen a man? He knows my heart. Verse 28, Jesus promised them they will not be disappointed. What he declared was absolutely true. Listen, so Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. You, talks about the 12, 12 thrones. It's limited to them. Jesus declared they will reign in the regeneration. It goes back to Isaiah 65, 17, 2 Peter 3, 10, Revelation 21 through 2, Daniel chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 6, 2, uses the word regeneration for us born again, Titus 3, 5 also. He's talking about the millennial kingdom here. That's what he's talking about. They help in judicial matters, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What a privilege, huh? Read the book of Revelation, the different levels and foundations of the Twelve apostles and everything. The twelve tribes. They go hand in hand. Now Jesus declared, none will regret what they gave up. Listen to his words in 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Just while we're here, what I gave up, what I believe I gave up, what the world would consider giving up is nothing compared to what God has given to me. I was very popular in the world around my town and everywhere else because of my reputation and because of the martial arts and my brother and I and different things. And But being in the Lord, man, we've been able to reach so many other people. It's amazing. God is so good. All of you that come here, you're my brothers and my sisters. I used to hang out with a little clique crowd just like me. They're all a bunch of jerks. 
Now, my horizons are broadened to the family of God. Wow, what a blessing. Verse 30, there will be many surprises in heaven. Listen carefully. But many who are first will be last and last first. Some who were last on earth will be first in heaven. It's going to be a shocker. And some who were first on earth are not going to be in heaven. Ooh. Bummer. That's why Jesus says abide. Agonize. Run the race in faith. Don't be deceived. Don't go to the left. Don't go to the right. Don't drift. Don't backslide. Don't go back in the world. If there was no possibility for those, why would he say it? Simple. Wow. The next 16 verses of chapter 20 go with this chapter. The last statement in verse 30 is illustrated by that parable that he's going to give. But we don't have time for it tonight. Okay? We'll tie it together. You see, here's a good example of, okay, we read it there. I shut it down. I turn, shut my Bible. The next time I come, I pick up there, and I don't see the connection. It's a choo-choo train. It's hooked together. Love God's Word. So great. Are you growing? Wiser? Hungry more about God and His Word? I hope so. Lord, we worship You. We thank You. Thank You for tonight, for Your Word. Thank You for every person that's here over the Internet and, Lord, for just the radio throughout the world. Lord, if there's someone out there who doesn't know You, speak to their hearts that they would call on Your name and be saved, that You would forgive them and just transform their life and use them for Your glory. If you're out there somewhere in the world, you don't know Jesus Christ, a prayer repentance is what God requires. Recognizing you're a sinner and he died for you. He loves you. And if you confess your sins, he will save you and make a new creation of you. This is a simple prayer repentance, whether you're here, somewhere in the world, or over the internet. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.